The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, as was already said, welcome to a new year. What a great opportunity we have before us. It's been a great uh, run up for those of you who are returning students and just were getting back to campus. Uh, we've been at it for a little while. We had uh, student leaders and student athletes, and the international students joined us, and then the new entering freshmen and transfer students, and now we're all back together again here with the faculty and staff to begin another academic year. I really enjoy these convocation chapels where we all come together. We muster here in the gym for the start of the new year. While I recognize that some of you have already had classes and practices and all kinds of things, your week has already begun. We begin fresh here, right now, this new academic year, and it uh, promises to be a good one. Uh, we're uh, full, and we are excited, and we have been blessed by the Lord in these summer months in numerous ways, chief of which is Him bringing all of you here or back here for another year. I take great joy in saying this to you each year. If you're sitting here this morning wondering if you should be here, put it out of your mind. You are here, and we repeat with God's servant Job, nothing can thwart the purposes of God. He's brought you here by His grace. He will sustain you by His grace. He will lead you and provide for you according to His grace. And so as we begin this new year, I trust that this morning you'll be encouraged as we look into the Word, as we've sung together, as we'll conclude in just a few minutes with uh, singing the university hymn and praying together, we'll begin this new year focusing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the faculty and staff just did this last week. I think I've shared with you numerous times that we gather together at the beginning of each semester for a prayer service. We read scripture, we sing together, <clears throat> we refocus ourselves on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This year, in particular, we were focusing on Jesus. The reason for that is we talk often about the university being centered on the person of Jesus and the Word of God. What does it mean for us to be Christ-centered? Well, you know, an institution can talk about being Christ-centered, but it's the people that make it up that have to be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I've selected this passage of Scripture from Mark that will get us to focus our attention on who Jesus is and His call upon our lives, individually and corporately. And so I would invite you, if you have your Bible, to open it to the passage that was read for us in Mark chapter 8. These few verses at the end of that chapter, 31 and following, but let me set just a little bit of context and then draw some observations from this that I think speak to us in a very pointed way this morning. This passage of Scripture details for us something very interesting in the life of the disciples, and particularly in the life of Peter, because what we'll see is that Peter goes from being blessed by Jesus, by getting the answer right when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am, to being referred to as Satan. It's a little bit of whiplash. If you can imagine, right, uh, Peter always wanting to have the right answer, always zealous and fervent in his faith in the Lord, always zealous and fervent in his following of the Lord, gets referred to by the Lord Jesus himself as Satan. There's a lot to unpack in this passage and a lot for us to think about in terms of our own lives and our own faith, because what Jesus does for Peter here is a gracious thing, a loving thing. You wouldn't think that was true when you look at the actual words of him saying, get behind me, Satan, but it is 
very much a gracious and loving act. What happens in the context here is that this is after the feeding of the 4,000. This is after Jesus heals the blind man at Bethsaida. He is now moving north. He's moving north to Caesarea Philippi. He's moving into pagan territory. He's moving into that land where Herod built a temple to a pagan god, where the pagan god Pan had a temple, where eventually there will be a temple to Zeus. And Jesus on that road into pagan territory asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? It's very telling that Jesus would do it right there because that's the issue. Folks, we as followers of Jesus are pilgrims in a foreign land. This land is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. We are called to live here as his servants, but we find ourselves in a land that does not know him. And for you and I, in the day in which we live, a land that is becoming increasingly more and more secularized. And in that context, Jesus is moving with his students and says to them, who do you say that I am? And they told him the usual cast of characters. Some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he turns and asks, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? They're to be ready to give an answer. Look, all of us here, whether you're a student or a member of the faculty and staff, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this question you must be ready to answer. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter lunges forward. He doesn't say, well, we think you are or we say you are. He does it with even more force than that. He says, you are the Christ. Boy, Peter wasn't afraid to take a risk. He doesn't necessarily say he's speaking for the group, but he says it in such a declarative way. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. And then we pick up with the rest of the story that was read for us. So Peter has said, you are the Christ. Now it's interesting that Mark does not record what Matthew records. Matthew records at this point that Jesus goes on to say, your name shall be Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates. All of that. Matthew records that. Mark does not. I think that's for a very specific reason. The writer of this gospel, John Mark, was a companion of Peter's. While some have suggested that John Mark has pieced this gospel together from Peter's preaching, I think it's more he's recording Peter's spiritual memoir. He's writing down Peter's account of what happened. And Peter doesn't need that to be said, but it's interesting that Peter does want John Mark to record that Jesus referred to him as Satan. Because that lesson is one we all desperately need. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. If only Peter knew what he was saying. Because what he means by that is you are the Messiah. You are the one who comes to save. You are the anointed one of God. You are the Savior. You are the Christ. And then it says that Jesus went on and began to teach them that the Son of Man, if your, if your declaration is something you really believe, you must come to this term, terms with this. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He will be killed and after three days rise again. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to start this year focusing on Jesus, we must be clear about this. He is the Christ who would be rejected, killed, buried, and raised again. We do not believe in Jesus as a prophet or a life coach or a good teacher. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Lamb of God. 
So when you answer the question, who do you say that I am, and you say you are the Christ, you must mean this, because Jesus goes on to say, this is what there is for me. I will suffer and be rejected. I'll be taken and killed, buried, and raised again on the third day. Securing for all of us forgiveness and redemption and the promise of eternal life. This is what he wants his followers to know. If we're going to focus on Jesus, if we're going to talk about being Christ-centered, we must begin with this. First and foremost, he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world whose atoning sacrifice purchased once and for all our souls. And faith in him is the only thing that matters. And so he says to them, the Son of Man must suffer these things and be rejected. And he said it plainly. Which means that unlike other things that have been going on as Jesus is traveling with the disciples, this one he puts straight away. You say I'm the Christ, and you are right, but here's the deal. The Christ must suffer and be rejected. He must be killed, but I will raise, rise again. And then it says something very honest, that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. It doesn't say that Peter took Jesus aside and said, can you explain this a little bit more? It doesn't say Peter took Jesus aside and said, uh, later on I'd like to talk some more about this. Um, can we have lunch? Can we discuss this? He goes to Peter, Jesus and pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him for this foolishness. This cannot happen to you, the other gospel records. This cannot happen. This will not happen. You are the Christ. These things can't happen. And Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And that's a very telling thing. It's very honest. I can imagine Peter telling John Mark, don't miss this. Because I was wrong. Don't miss this. Write this one down. I took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus, very interesting detail. You wouldn't get this from someone's preaching. Jesus, turning and seeing the disciples watching, said to him this. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, it's interesting, people write on this all the time, you think, well, Jesus is saying, look, Peter, no, like, this is the plan. You can't thwart the plan. Peter, don't rebuke me because this has to happen and I can't have anything standing in the way. Trust me, Peter was not going to stand in the way. If we think for one minute that we have the power to thwart the work of God, we think way too highly of ourselves. So when Peter says he's rebuking, Peter's rebuking the Lord, and the Lord turns seeing the disciples paying attention and says, no, no, this cannot happen. He says, get behind me, Satan. And what he says after that is what, what amplifies that rebuke. He says, you are setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this should be a penetrating truth for us. He's not rebuking Peter and calling him Satan because Peter has the power to interrupt the plan of God to save the world. He's rebuking Peter because he's wrong. Because what Peter wants is what he wants from God. What Peter wants is Jesus to be the political savior who will rid his people of Roman rule. Peter wants temporal things. When Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you've not, you've not set your minds on the things of God, but the things of man. It's a very strong rebuke. He doesn't just call him Satan. He says, no, this is why you're thinking like Satan. This is why you're representing Satan, because you've set your minds on the wrong things. And he says, no, no, you can't do that. You can't set your mind on the things of man. You must set your mind on the things of God. And Paul does this throughout the New Testament. He reminds the church to set their minds on the things of God. The way we think matters. This year in chapel, I'll actually be unpacking a series for us 
sound judgment, thinking biblically about the disciplines of mind and heart. We need this now in our day when we are so pushed by our emotions, so pushed by our desires. We live in a world that says, if you want it, if you feel it, that makes it good enough, just go after it. We have to bring to bear some biblical discipline on the issues of mind and heart. That's what Peter gets wrong here. He loves Jesus. He wants Jesus to be more influential and more powerful and more well-loved and more popular. But he wants it for the wrong reasons, and he wants the practical outcome to be one that is pleasing to him. He wants from Jesus what he wants from Jesus, not what God had intended. And that's what happens to us. We're convinced that our will is the most important thing. It is not. The Bible says, set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. But we live in a culture that says, if you want it, if you feel it, then that's good enough. But not here, because when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things, he must be killed, but on the third day he will rise again, Peter says, no, no, not you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you've set your mind on the wrong things. The exhortation for us is to be careful because it's so easy to do. These men were walking with Jesus. They saw the miracles. They heard the teaching. They benefited from Jesus' physical presence, and still they got it wrong. So here we are in a context where we all share in common this belief. You're here at an institution that not only says Christ and the Bible are at the center of what we do, we talk about it all the time, and the entire curriculum is built upon it. It doesn't mean you're exempt from thinking this way, from putting your mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. In fact, Satan would like nothing more than to have us make the same mistake Peter made. And how do we combat it? Well, Jesus goes on then in this passage to say, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. The work that Jesus accomplished on the cross is a picture of what you and I must do. We must deny ourselves. Part of being disciplined in our mind and heart is to set aside earthly desires and earthly goals and earthly intentions, these human things that are corrupted by the world around us, and set our minds on the things of God as the redeemed one of Jesus, not because we're more pious or self-righteous or we know more truth, but because we've been bought with a price. We're on the other side of the disciples' experience. We're on the other side of the resurrection. He was victorious. He did rise again. He lives forever. He has purchased for us all those things. We should live accordingly. And part of that means we set our minds on the things of God. So as we begin this new academic year, that's the encouragement. It isn't just to talk about being Christ-centered, but to have that being Christ-centered so permeate this that we are encouraging one another and exhorting one another when we see us focusing our minds not on the things of God. Watch out for one another. Guard your own mind and heart. This semester, as we talk about this particular subject, there is a degree of discipline that needs to be brought to our Christian lives that is centered on Jesus. And we begin with this. He endured suffering on the cross. His blood was shed, as we've just been singing. What a great gift it is for us. He, he has done all this for us. And he says, deny yourself then. You know, when I was coming up through and being discipled as a teenager, we talked a lot about this concept of the crucified life. And I remember thinking when I was younger that that's a pretty scary term. Now, I don't know that that's what I signed up for when I became a Christian, the crucified life. What does that mean? But it means this, that you would deny yourself as Jesus denied himself, that you would take up your cross as Jesus took up his cross, that you would do the will of the Father and not the will of man. 
I can't think of a better way for us to start this year than focusing on that. To learn from the example set here by the Apostle Peter in Mark's Gospel, who is, who is rebuked for setting his mind on the wrong things, and following after that the teaching that Jesus gives that encourages us and tells us how we are to do it, to deny ourselves. You know, I promise you this, um, there aren't a lot of contexts or a lot of teaching in the world that would call us to that kind of life, but that's exactly what the Christian life is. We lay it all down because of what has been given to us. We lay it all down.